from PRX. Stew. Stew. Dear. Dear. Keep listening. Stay right there. Don't go anywhere. Stay. Sit. This week, we are bringing you some of our favorite stories and conversations about dance. Or the dance, as I say when I want to be pretentious. Starting off with the most famous living American choreographer, Twyla Tharp. Twyla Tharp's choreography is performed by companies all over the world. And more than 50 years after her first dance piece, now at age 76, she is still making new work. She just had a show in New York City called Dylan Love Songs, a series of dances set to the music of Bob Dylan, which is a perfect example of what people love about Twyla Tharp. She's this serious choreographer who also unabashedly embraces and choreographs to familiar pop music. In 2002, she won a Tony Award for the Broadway musical Movin' Out, which had a score consisting entirely of Billy Joel songs. And then she created an excellent Broadway show that I saw based on one of her earliest musical inspirations. I've got the world on a string Sitting on a rainbow my mother considered Sinatra to be the end-all and be-all of popular singers, and I don't disagree with her. Uh, I have listened to some of these songs literally thousands of times by now, and I still feel that there's an emotional content in them that matches uh, the musical ability the man had. My finger, lucky me, can't you see I'm in love? Back in 2010, Twyla Tharp came in to talk about Come Fly Away, her show built around Sinatra songs. She'd started listening when she was a kid growing up in Southern California. I grew up in a strange family. Didn't we all? Yes. Uh, but for my purposes, mine is more useful probably than having grown up in yours might have been. Uh, I grew up in a drive-in theater, for one thing. Literally? Which, yes. I they, worked, your parents ran it? Yes, they owned it. And cool. I know. I started working there when I was eight years old. This uh, is in Southern California? Southern California. I worked there until I went away to college regularly, saw all the films, and more importantly, saw all the films often with no sound because I would not be in a car where the speaker where I'd be outside watching the big screen. So I learned to read action. But that was after already having endured my brothers and sister. My brothers are twins, and my sister was born three days before they were a year old. And essentially, they lived in the same room, and they were triplets. Younger? Yes. And they evolved. You seem like an oldest child of me. Yes, thank you. Uh, and they evolved what's called Italalia. They developed a sign language, and they created their own language, which they spoke 
so-called, before learning any language. And when they started in um, grade school, they couldn't speak English. They could speak Italia, uh, which was uh, mostly sign language. It was movement. uh, And I was the family translator between the parents and the siblings. And so I learned to read movement. Is that why with this show, as in your other, most of your other work, uh, on Broadway, you work without a book and a story and dialogue, but stick to the music and the dancing? We have a book, we have a story, and we have dialogue. They are not spoken. The book is a series of action that uh, transpires in exactly the way that silent film functions. Uh, The dialogue is when in a duet uh, there is a conversation that is silent uh, between the two partners. So you decide, here's the 20 songs here, or how many ever songs there are, here's the order, and then you figure out the story you're going to tell? Yes and no. I mean, basically, I try to start that way. There will be changes, obviously, but uh, there's a lot of... uh, balancing to be done uh, because in this show there are four couples whose relationship evolves so that the pacing of the action uh, had to be very carefully balanced, the right songs found for the right couples, and then the right sequence found so that there would be an overall musical pacing for two acts. Fly me to the moon, let me play among the stars. There's a great sequence when when a female dancer is is tossed all over the stage by three male dancers. This and it's this seemed to me this fantastically sort of virtuoso, athletic but effortless seeming Twyla Tharp kind of moment. Uh, do you do you have that in your head as you hear that song? How does that how does that work in the in the making of this show process? Uh, it's partially, it's a pun, which I love to do, a little because of the three little ones, of the triplets. Uh, fly me to the moon. Okay, let's fly this girl. So we toss her and turn her and we lift her and we swoop her and we swing her. But it's also a genre for me, a kind of uh, partnering that I have worked on throughout the years of a single female partnered by a number of men. And how do you do this? Uh, just as a bare bones sort of technical matter. And then about midway through the show, there's this downbeat, introspective solo danced to this song. As a man who has always had the wandering ways, now I'm reaching back for yesterday. Till a long-forgotten love appears. That's the September of my years. Can you describe yeah. what, okay. what your dancers do? Okay, this is a gorgeous performance. I, I think that, it, obviously, it's in many ways, it's the most profoundly moving of the songs in, 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 the, in the evening. Uh, and it's danced by the character who's called Sid, uh, who is an older character. And this kid, who is an amazing dancer, Charlie Hodges, uh, it bounds about the stage and jumps and lifts and turns and can do anything He's and young. everything. And you see our character, Sid, go to the center of the stage. And this is a monologue. This is his response to the sense of, well, yeah, you're no longer so young, guy. 
and the girls aren't coming to you, are they? Uh, and he's grounded. He's more weighted. And it's a very, to me, moving moment because it's a great dancer who I love very much, who I've been working with for over 20 years. And it's true. It's the September of his years. And what he's able to do, he's able to do at the peak of his abilities. He's an amazing dancer technically, but he has a maturity that is very rare. The golden warm September of my year. You've also worked in film and and one of my all-time favorite scenes in film is in Hair, which you worked on, where these horses in Central Park dance. How do you do that? Well, what, how you do it is first you have the idea, which was um, Mike Weller and Milos were working on that script for probably nearly a year. when it's Milos I, Foreman. When I, yeah, uh, sorry. Uh, when I started to work on the picture, and I worked on the script with them for a year before we started shooting. Really? They let you work on the script? What do you mean let? <laughs> it was part of my job. Okay. No, and they were, they were very generous about it. Uh, I didn't know much about structuring a scene, but I knew that if you're in the park and you want to try and elevate the the naturalism into the musical world, how do you kick it into song and dance? Well, somebody's on acid. In, uh, exactly. The, yeah. uh, the best thing to do, particularly if you're a bunch of hippies, is have the horses under the authorities start to dance. So they like that idea, and we got dancing horses. But uh, Where you, you just order up dancing horses? Yes, they're huh. they're special. Really, lapis owners, right? Oh, uh-huh. and, and they're a special breed, and they're trained to perform certain yeah. rhythmic uh, maneuvers. And of course, I did not teach them our steps. I taught the dancers the horses' steps, who were pre-trained and flowing into us. Do you think about how and where your work will be performed 50, 100 years from now? Very definitely. I'm very involved with archiving and with education. I often say dance is the only art form without an artifact. It has no score. Right. It has no text. It has no it's, painting. It's And that's left a fraught history. It is, yes. It's also, might I point out, the oldest and the most original of art forms because you cannot do anything until you can move. You can't write a song. You can't paint a painting. Uh, and dance has a huge long history, but it's not been recorded nor documented, and that's no longer necessary. It's not just a thing that's ephemeral. It does have a a container. Um, video obviously has made this possible, but video is deceptive because that's only one performance. And so uh, I have a very extensive video archive. I started in 1969, and there are thousands of tapes. It's interesting. In 1969, you were doing this. At age 26, you knew that you were going to be a world-class I grad- choreographer for the ages? I graduated from Barnard College in art history. Still? Uh, listen, by age 26, I'd done a lot. Uh, my mother's name is Liesel, 
And uh, I think of her as the equivalent of Wolfgang's father, Leopold, uh, and had somewhat of the same kind of constructed childhood. So by age 26, I'd been working already and making dances since I was four years old. And, and I guess as the oldest child, you become an adult at like age 10. Yes, an, an adult when they were born. I became an adult when they were born. Twyla Tharp, thank you very much. Thank you. My pleasure. In November in London, Twyla Tharp will premiere a new piece with the Royal Ballet called The Illustrated Farewell, as in Haydn's very familiar Farewell Symphony. Every so often, we like to share people's stories about how some work of art or piece of entertainment changed their lives. We call it the aha moment. A woman named Yula Natalie grew up outside Washington, D.C. When she got to high school, it nearly swallowed her whole. I was one in a sea of um, 4,500 kids, and really took me a long time to find any kind of identity in that school. It was a really tough place to be a teenager. Yula had grown up studying ballet, but her family couldn't afford classes anymore. Add to that, puberty. I mean, I went from being a stick pole with, you know, flat chests and, you know, perfect ballet body to a D cup overnight. And I didn't really know what to do with it. I was no longer, definitely didn't look like a ballerina anymore. And so I kind of gave that up and slowly learned to not really like the way I looked or feel very comfortable with myself. It was 1991, so like pretty much every high schooler in America, Yilla was into U2, big time. Aktung Baby had just come out. I bought this video compilation, and I believe it was called Interference. I bought it on BHS, and I popped it in one day. It had all the videos from the Octum Baby album. And in between the videos, there were little sound bites and interviews. And right before the Mysterious Ways video, very quick sound bite of Bono saying, I have a weakness for belly dancers. I have a weakness for belly dancers. This video was really tantalizing. There were scenes in Morocco and, you know, beautiful white buildings. And then a belly dancer shows up. And her movements were like butter. <laughs> she had a beautiful curvy body and long dark hair, and she was dancing in a way that was very feminine. This woman that he's describing, this dancer, she was able to make Bono go down on his knees. And to me, that was so powerful that she could take this amazing rock star and make him suffer so, really blew my mind.
that's when I decided, you know what, I want to have that kind of power. And I want to be able to not necessarily make men feel that way, that really wasn't the aim, but to have that level of power. And so I would watch the video and try and emulate her. And I got some of the moves down before I ever set foot in the classroom. It's been over 20 years since I saw that video. And now I am um, a belly dance instructor and performer. And um, I've been performing at weddings and in restaurants and in people's living rooms and on stages for the last 10 or so years. The women that I teach are not teens, they're, they're older women. They have children, they're lawyers, they come from all walks of life, but they still have that sense that they're not beautiful enough or powerful enough or good enough. But when you get to stand in front of a group of people that you don't know, that don't know you, and when you walk into the room with this amazing bang of music, you feel in control and you feel beautiful. It's really not about them desiring you. That, to me, was always a byproduct. If they desire you, that's on them. But that really wasn't the aim. The aim was to make people happy. And so I've seen it turn women's lives around. I've seen it change their entire mode of thinking about the power that they possessed and didn't know that they had. So it's a real blessing. Bonner has not seen my belly dancing yet, and he's running out of time because I don't want to be doing this too much longer. I'd rather teach. So Bonner has to hurry up if he wants to see this, this amazing product <laughs> that he's created. And I'm sure he'll love it. <laughs> That story was produced by Jenny Lawton with help from Ariel Roland Waring. Since we first aired it in 2014, Yilla informs us that, sadly, she still hasn't gotten to perform for Bono. Is there some song or book or movie or other cultural work that has altered your trajectory in a big way? If so, send us a voice memo or message explaining your aha moment to incoming at studio360.org. That's incoming at studio360.org, and we might put yours on the air, too. Coming up... Yeah, I, I would like to die while I was dancing a tango with a beautiful woman, okay? I think it's the best way for me to die. A reporter tries to understand her parents' sudden late-in-life tango obsession. That's ahead in Studio 360 from Public Radio International in association with Slate. When Yo-Wei Shaw was in college, her parents' relationship started to change. Standard empty nest syndrome, she figured. But, uh-uh, her parents had become tango aficionados, full-on obsessed with dramatic, racy dancing. Then they invited Yo-Wei to join them on a visit to, of course, Buenos Aires. 
You know that moment when your parents turn out to be people you never thought they were? We'll see this time how long you can keep your white jacket on. <laughs> yeah, depending on how cold it is, mm. or how warm it is, or how hot you are, mommy. Whoa. My mom and dad came to the U.S. from Taiwan in the 70s. They were poor graduate students speaking little English. Now they have a big quiet house in the suburbs and a solid 401k, basically the American dream. But something was missing. It's just so amazing, you know. Here in Buenos Aires, you talk to the superstar, the my dream girls. That something turned out to be the tango. Yeah, on YouTube, I've been watching them, follow them for four years, and then you actually talk to them and you see them dancing in front of you. They've rented an apartment in Buenos Aires, and my mom is practically levitating. The first week is just a breathless, you know, just. The pace is so fast. I remember one day I hit five spots. I'm kind of like a, you know, bumblebee. They're just a tiny bit embarrassed, and so they've asked to be anonymous for the story. Mom wants me to call her Alejandra after a dancer she admires. The other night, Alejandra danced with this guy called Bravo Bruno. Bravo Bruno. Yes, he actually air kissed me. <laughs> he said that you are wonderful. Of course, they're always sweet talking, you know. <laughs> Buenos Aires men—they're the expert in flirting. It wasn't always like this. Before they started dancing tango, a typical evening for my parents involved watching TV or listening to Mozart. Either lying on the sofa or lying on the bed. So it's kind of boring, actually. Nothing wrong with it. But over the years, they didn't have much in common anymore. My dad liked science and gadgets. My mom's into shopping, going to church, and managing the family finances. Dad tried to get her into sailing, but she always complained. These are the last people you'd imagine doing the dance of passion, especially my dad. Um, I mean Sebastian. People are always surprised. They say,、uh, "But you don't look like somebody who's danced tango." He's a medical research scientist, khaki pants, a plaid shirt, and big metal frame glasses. I probably look very nerdy. It's just my personality. I I, I don't want to be、uh, very showy, do, do dramatic things, do very sexy things. It all began one summer a few years ago. My parents took a two-week cruise to South America, where they offered tango lessons. When they got home, my mom started borrowing old dresses of mine to go dancing. These were the mini dresses I used to hide under a big jacket. My sister's Yomanyolan noticed something was up too. I come home from school, and mommy's in her tango outfit, you know, like pink leopard print tights. They lost a lot of weight when they started doing it. She'll grab me as I come in through the door, and start using me as a as a leader. They were very excited, and they were telling me to go watch some videos on YouTube of their teachers. They recruited two of my friends to tango, so I like. I guess I stopped seeing them as much. Okay, so it used to be before it would be opera or Rachmaninoff piano concertos, but now it's or just radio. or business radio. <laughs> but now it's just tango music. It's like tango music 24 hours a day. My parents stepped up their commitment to tango from one night to five nights a week, and then fate struck. In 2008, Hurricane Ike it destroyed the roofs of our house, so they decided just you know why not renovate the first floor so that we could have an area just to tango. And that's what they really did. 
they knocked out the wall between our living room and family room for a dance floor. When I started asking my dad about the tango, I discovered another side of him. I didn't become an artist, and partially because my family wasn't rich enough to let me do something impractical or let me spend extra money to, to learn music instruments or to do art. My scientist dad has the soul of an artist. It's a feeling that uh, you are communicating with another human being, not just to say hi, not just uh, pretend to be friendly. You know, you actually have to f- be able to feel the music and then convert your feelings into the motion. For my mom, on the other hand, tango is more of an outlet for her obsession with technique and details. I like to focus on the technique first because I know at least whether I'm doing correctly and then uh, how to do it uh, artistically. I don't know, I just cannot stand watching people had a bad technique and moving on the floor. Why not? Like, where does this come from, this perfectionism? I don't know, I really don't know. I just feel that this is art, you know, you cannot abuse that. (laughs) You cannot trash it. And here's something I didn't expect. Now my parents have more tango problems than real-life problems. You claim that you know how to dance in close embrace. You you keep on saying that, I know how to dance close embrace with other women. So I'm trying to feel that very strange. I mean, I've never seen them fight like this. The night before, the tango instructor taught my parents a position called close embrace. It's where the couple stands facing each other chest to chest and has full or partial body contact. You guys just kind of emerged from the bedroom and then started dancing. We were arguing <laughs> on, the, on the bed for a long time, so, uh, okay, so. About close embrace? About, uh, uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not oh yeah, the typical argument is that mommy always uh, blame on me, okay? She said, oh, I'm do not doing this correct, I'm not doing that correct. Right? For almost 40 minutes, Alejandra and Sebastian zip around barefoot in their pajamas, trying to correct each other's steps. Please lean on me. No, I don't. Yes, you know, I tend to criticize and be very judgmental. And uh, with tango, I, I have to learn to... Uh, uh, keep my patient and keep my temper slower. Yeah, sometimes it hurts people's feelings. Yeah, I mean, you know, he could hurt my feelings. Perhaps uh, before we solve the problem, we shouldn't be dancing. Yeah, shouldn't be dancing with each other. From your daughter's perspective, seeing you guys dance together is very special for us, but has it also I don't know, brought more romance to your marriage, too? That wasn't... I, I that really, you know, I, I think that that's probably misconception. I'm sure some people who like to dance tango, they may be looking for romance with uh, their partner or to meet with uh, opposite-sex friends, but uh, uh, not for us. I sort of feel that we are two separate professional dancers. It's like an opportunity to, to perform. I don't believe him. And neither do my sisters. I feel like they flirt a lot more when I walk in on them, like, I don't know, in the bedroom. Like, they're just more giggly. He likes to joke um, about how people will think that he's her dad or something, and how many men will ask her to dance. 
When my parents dance together, my mom has a glow about her. A famous tango teacher named Natasha Paharov gave my parents some coaching, and she started to cry. <laughs> it really looks like you, you have a life full of things that you really share and in a, in a very deep commitment. It's really emotional. <laughs> emotional. <laughs> I'm just like that. Artist. 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 Now I've noticed little things too. How my dad always makes sure my mom has a partner to dance with before asking someone else. How my mom tries on tango clothes for him to admire and approve. And how they never get jealous. That's love. Yeah, I, I would like to die when I, while I was dancing a tango with a beautiful woman, okay? I just dropped that. that. That's the way, I think it's the best way for me to die. Not with mommy, the oh, beautiful... Mommy, mommy is a beautiful tango woman, yeah. We first aired that story in 2011. Yo-Wei Shaw is now a producer at NPR's Invisibilia. A physicist named Ken Laws was also struck by a midlife urge to dance. But instead of tango, he thought that ballet might be his thing. Turns out it isn't easy to find a ballet class for middle-aged men. So, as he told reporter Hillary Frank, he decided just to tag along with his children to their class. They were five and seven at the time. Ken started ballet at 40. Surprisingly, he was much better than the kids at first. But then a couple years into his training, something really made his head spin. The teacher would say, now do a tendu to the side. That's when you stand at the bar and move your foot to the side with a pointed toe. And then she'd say, now lift the leg, but don't move anything but the leg. And I would stand there thinking, yeah, sure. The center of gravity is moving off to the right side. So when you lift the leg, you're going to topple over, of course. The center of gravity means a lot to Ken. When he wasn't taking children's ballet classes, he was teaching college physics. So he was shocked when he looked around the room and all the kids were lifting their legs and not falling over. And I thought, wait a minute. How come these little kids can violate the laws of physics the way I've known the laws of physics for the last 30 years? It took Ken a minute to figure it out. The kids were just cheating. They start off a little bit asymmetric. They lift the leg for a very short time so they don't have time to topple. And they're applying a little bit of force on the bar to keep themselves from toppling. And then once you learned that, did you discover that you could do what the teacher was asking you to do? Oh, sure. I learned to cheat. (laughs) But I also learned that This dance studio is a physics laboratory. There's all sorts of physics going on in here. That's when Ken really fell for ballet, and he fell hard. So hard that he kept taking kids' classes even after his own kids quit. He danced in local productions, often playing both the party host and Mother Ginger within one performance of The Nutcracker. The more he practiced, the more questions like these kept popping into his head. What's happening to the torque? Where is my moment of inertia? Where am I getting the force to make this happen? Am I conserving energy? Ken started tinkering and built a ballet training bar that measured the amount of force exerted on it by a dancer. 
He rigged it to a projector and brought it with him to lectures. He started teaching dance classes of his own. The leg is thrown out by centrifugal force, but when it's thrown out, the moment of inertia is larger, the angular velocity decreases, you're going more slowly. Eventually, Ken figured he'd amassed enough information on physics and dance to write a book. He called it simply The Physics of Dance. And I thought, oh, people are going to gobble this up. It's natural. I was like, are you trying to teach me school or ballet? Like, what is this? Sarah Michelle Morosky was 11 when she first read one of Ken's books. I don't know. He has like, like something like this in it. F, P equals W, L, C, C. I don't know how to even say it now. Sarah Michelle's used to help Ken demonstrate at some of his seminars. At nearly five foot ten with a skinny ballerina body, she's prone to falling over. Ken taught her all kinds of ways to adjust her weight over her center. The results were immediate. It was kind of one of those moments that Ken always talks about. He says it's the aha moment, and it's like, oh my gosh, I just realized what I need to fix. And that's the most exciting part about teaching with, you know, this science. They get so excited when they apply the physical principles to their dancing. Arlene Sugano uses Ken's methods in her classes in Little Rock, Arkansas. She sees the biggest results when she's teaching turns. What does it take to turn? Torque. Torque. Remember torque? Yeah, probably not. Um, Torque is two opposing forces acting on an object. And how do we produce multiple turns? Well, you have to increase the duration of the torque. So how would we do that? Well, we would plie longer. And so you would stay in that bent knee position as you did this twisting of the feet. Maybe that sounds hard to follow, but Arlene's 13-year-old's got it. All of a sudden, I hear screaming and jumping up and down and and screaming, Miss A, Miss A, oh my God, my God, I just did four turns. And I start crying. (laughs) You start crying? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And they all laugh and they clap because they say, we did it. We did it. We made her cry. Sarah Michelle agrees that, yes, all this physics business helps with doing lots and lots of turns. But what Ken and Arlene would tell her to do if she needed to pull off more than three pirouettes is wind up her arms to build momentum. But in terms of the ballet technique, most teachers would really get mad if you did that winding up thing. They just want you to be able to turn without getting any momentum or anything. Turns out a lot of dance teachers think it's blasphemous to talk about classical ballet in scientific terms. That point of view was captured in this Philadelphia Inquirer headline. He wants to reduce ballet to a science. He wants to reduce ballet to a science. That made me cringe. I wanted to crawl into a hole. I thought, how did I give that impression? That's the last thing in the world I want to do. Do those people have a point at all? Like, does making art seem scientific take the art out of out of the art? Yes, in fact, am I thinking about physical principles when I'm performing on stage? Not at all. You don't want to muddy your mind with the science when you're trying to express the aesthetics of the art form. The aesthetics of ballet are all about illusions. The artistry lies in dancers being able to fool us into believing they can turn without momentum or hang in midair. You can fight against gravity or you can accept and understand the logic of how gravity is working. And if you understand the logic, then you can work within those constraints. 
Really, Ken isn't trying to force physics on anyone. He just loves dancing. What do I love about dancing? Pas de deux. I love to dance with a woman. There's just something magical about the way the minds have to think differently but have to think the same. To my mind, the classical ballet pas de deux is the epitome of human life. <laughs> Since Hillary Frank produced that story for us, she has become host of the podcast The Longest Shortest Time. And Sarah Michelle Morosky, the young ballerina, now dances with the American National Ballet in Charleston, South Carolina. Still ahead, a hot choreographer takes one of George Gershwin's most famous scores and transforms it for Broadway. This trumpet line is maybe the most romantic, sexy line ever written in classical music. Christopher Wielden on trying to capture that romance in his adaptation of An American in Paris. That's next in Studio 360 from Public Radio International in association with Slate. Studio 360. I got rhythm. I got music. I got my gal who could ask for anything more. Who could ask for anything more? I found some etiquette. Back in 1951, Gene Kelly danced his way through George Gershwin's score as Jerry Mulligan in the film An American in Paris. Say the time step. time step. Ah, we look time step. He's a GI at the end of World War II who has decided to stick around Paris and become an artist and falls in love with a ballerina who's got other plans. In 2015, a stage adaptation premiered on Broadway that took Gershwin's score and put the dancing totally front and center, as I'm not sure I'd ever seen before in a musical. And I'd never seen a Broadway show of any kind that moves more seamlessly or gracefully which is the work of the director and choreographer, Christopher Wielden. At age 44, he has already had a long career as a star performer and even bigger star choreographer. Christopher Wielden, welcome to Studio 360. Thank you so much. Great to be here. As a kid, I read that you were a Gene Kelly fan as well as a Gershwin, introduced to Gershwin at seven. I was introduced to Gershwin at seven. My parents took me to a concert. I threatened to sleep. And of course, I was on the edge of my seat for the whole show. Um, and I was a big fan of the, of the American movie musical. Living in you know rural England in the days when there were still only three TV channels. Yes. <laughs> um, it was a big deal when, when one of those big movies came out on, yes. on the screen. So for listeners who aren't familiar with An American in Paris, describe the love story between Jerry and Lise. Well, um, we set our story right back at the moment of the liberation of Paris. So when they meet, they meet sort of amid the the city, very low in confidence, uh, really trying sort of desperately to kind of pull itself back from this devastating period. So... Um, 
so it's sort of this incredibly beautiful moment of uh, of love kind of emerging from darkness. The way you've used Gershwin's score is interesting as well. I want to play a bit from his American in Paris suite. Instead of making this the overture for the show, you use it near the end in this ballet, this show within the show, that you stage in a very stylized way. It looks like abstract art of the period. Yeah, absolutely. And it, you know, it was sort of around the time of that Balanchine was emerging as yes. a great choreographer. Of course, the the ballet russe. Um, so it's an abstract ballet, and it's the sort of culmination of all of our principal characters' art forms crashing together at the end of the show. And at the heart of it is the moment when Jerry and Lee's finally get to come together and it's sort of the romantic climax. Um, and there's this sort of extended duet where we, where she sort of conjures him up. It's liquid romance, this... Yeah, it really is, yeah. ...trumpet line is maybe the most romantic, sexy line ever written in classical music. <laughs> And so it was about finding a way to make a sort of grounded, earthy, sinuous, kind of sweaty movement um, using the classical ballet vocabulary. There is great dancing in the show, but these people really have to sing in a in a great way. Um, and here is Robert Fairchild who plays Jerry singing. Gosh, I'm fortunate. This thing we've begun is much more than a pastime. For this time is the one where the first time is the last time. I've got beginner's luck, lucky through and through. For the first time that I'm in love, I'm in love with you. So finding great dancers who can really sing and who can act, there's a lot of just plain acting, must have been incredibly difficult. How did, it, you, how did you do that? It was a search, for sure. I mean, there's a bit of a history on Broadway of ballet dancers going into shows and, you know, everybody is impressed by the dancing but kind of oof, shame about the voice or not quite there and <laughs> yeah. and Robbie was always in the back of my mind I'd worked with him at City Ballet um, so I kind of I had a I had a hunch that he would be our guy but I made him go through it he auditioned for me several times and we wow. looked at a lot of other people too you did a run of the show before it came to New York and Paris um, did, did you make changes uh, for the American audience Oh, yes, <laughs> we did. Like? Um, we took about 23 minutes off the running time from Paris. Wow, that's a lot. And w they were objective, oh, this just isn't working for an audience? Or were they, oh, uh, the French got this, but Americans won't? Or? It was a little bit of a combination of the two, actually. Um, we, we all felt that the show played really well in Paris, and the French audiences tend to, you know, they tend to sit longer. Um, and maybe it's because musical theater is more of a novelty there. Um, I don't know. but um, um, And then, of course, 
the jokes that landed in Paris didn't necessarily land here. And uh, so that was then we worked on the script. Uh-huh. Yeah. Having been a very successful choreographer for 15 years and not having been the director must have been scary because there are all kinds of skills. You may, it's adjacent, but they aren't the same. Yeah, I sweat even talking about it. The first, <laughs> the reading actually for me was the most terrifying part of the experience because um, we were all, you know, put into a room for four days. And at the end of it, it was sort of the first test of whether the script was going to work and whether I was going to be able to direct these guys. Um, and so day one, you know, there was, no one was moving. They were all just sitting there looking at me with their scripts. <laughs> I'm thinking, okay, this is definitely outside of my comfort zone. You danced from the time you were a very little boy and then you were in the Royal Ballet at 16 and then the New York City Ballet. And then, which must have totally shocked everybody, at 28, you retired. Yeah. Um, Talk about that decision. Well, you know, I was sort of at the end of all of these great choreographers' lives. I, you know, when I was a student at the school in London, I saw the end of uh, Frederick Ashton's life. And then I joined the Royal Ballet and I worked for a couple of years with Sir Kenneth Macmillan, who was, you know, another of the great choreographers. And then he, then he he passed away, and I, then I was like, okay, well, who's a, who's still around that I could work with? Because because I I just felt like I kept missing my chance in a sense to work with these greats. And Balanchine had already was already gone, um, and Jerome Robbins was still alive and working at the New York City Ballet. And you know, through sort of a twist of fate, uh, I was fascinated in American dance. I danced a Balanchine ballet for my graduation performance in London, and it felt like. It felt like suddenly I was wearing clothing that actually fit me. Um, So there were several reasons why I came to New York, but to work with Robbins was was sort of a primary reason. What did you learn from him? Uh, I learned a great deal from him. First, I worked with him on the abstract ballet repertoire of his. um, And what was interesting was even when Jerry was abstract, so even when we were out there and we weren't actually portraying characters, he encouraged us to find a character for ourselves and to relate to our fellow dancers. Really? So kind of write your own story? Write your own story. And then, of course, you know, working on West Side Story Suite, he he challenged us as ballet dancers in a way that we'd never been challenged before. He would say, just on the spot, he'd suddenly, you know, point at a dancer and say, you know, who are you? Where are you from? What's your, you know, how many brothers do you have? What's So you were, you had to sort of really invest in your character. So, you know, I was, what, a 22-year-old English boy from the southwest of England and suddenly I'm having to kind of come up with an American name where I live in New York City and did you you had your story I presume I had my story you obeyed Mr. Robbins I obeyed Mr. (laughs) Robbins I did he yelled at me once because you know there's the famous uh, rumble scene in West Side Story where we actually all have sort of have to vocalize and he gave us a bunch of things to say and um, there was just one particular rehearsal where everyone's kind of, you know, Bernardo and, and Riff are about to attack each other and everyone's shouting. And suddenly, for some reason, everyone went quiet. And I came out with, cut him like a fish. <laughs> and there was just this sort of dead silence. And he was like, what, what are you saying? <laughs> In that terrible, terrible <laughs> English accent. <laughs> You're not a jet. You're not a jet. <laughs> yeah, no. That's very funny. <laughs> and had you always, or not always, but from some adolescent moment or in your 20s thought, uh, I really am going to be a choreographer. I'm not going to 
become something else altogether when I stopped dancing? Yeah, it felt as natural a progression for me as being an eight-year-old standing outside the gates of the Royal Valley School with my parents in London and saying, I want to go there. You know, it was, and I was choreographing from a very early age. I had teachers at school that encouraged it. Um, and Really? Like at 12, you're choreographing? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I want to see that. Yeah, I choreographed a piece to Leroy Anderson's The Syncopated Clock. Oh, of course. When I was, ele- when I was 11 years old. Which all our listeners would recognize if we played it now. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember it was um, it was selected from a group of six or seven little pieces to be performed for Princess Margaret. And that was, you know, it's like, really? it's like anything in, in, your, in those years growing up. If somebody, if you get that little boost of confidence, then you start to think, oh, for well, sure. maybe I'm good, good at that. Good scene in the biopic with Princess Margaret watching. Yeah. <laughs> Um, When George Balanchine created his production of The Nutcracker uh, 60-odd years ago, he was 51, and he danced in it. So are you done? Have you hung up the shoes, or are you going to do it again? I have hung up the shoes. I I did a fundraising gala in London, and, um, you know, I hadn't been on on stage for about seven years, and um, it was a really uncomfortable experience. (laughs) I thought I would love it, and I got myself back into really, really good dancer shape, but actually it was the nerve suddenly of just... It, you know, I, I felt like um, I felt like an imposter because you build through the years, you build the confidence to be out on stage and, and it feels like home and suddenly it, it just didn't feel like home at all. Does was, that make you sad? Not really, because I perform every day in the studio when I'm creating. That's my that's now become my performance. By showing dancers what to do and by showing dancers what to do and and you know, feeling the movement in my body. Uh, nobody needs to pay to see that <laughs> anymore. I'm sure some in the dance world would pay a great deal to see that. That's a webcast you can begin. <laughs> Christopher Wheelden, it has been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. I spoke with Christopher in 2015, and American in Paris went on to win four Tony Awards, including Best Choreography, and it's now playing in London and on tour across America. And that is it for this week's episode. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our technical director is... Louis Mitchell. Our producers are not run-of-the-mill makers of radio. They're a special breed, and they're trained to perform certain rhythmic uh, maneuvers. They are... Sam Kim. Skylar Swenson. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. Our production assistant is... Claude Gallette. And I'm Kurt Anderson. Thanks very much for listening. PRI Public Radio International Next week on Studio 360 I'll be joined in the studio by Very important German Franco issues to cover It's a hot day, I had a couple of beers And Hello, hello, anybody vote conservative here? Plus my favorite Tracy Ullman character Tracy Ullman That's next time in Studio 360 From Public Radio International In association with Slate